Revelation, the second chapter. I'm going to begin reading at verse number 12. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. I have the New Living Translation, but as long as you have a Bible with you, you should be all right. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. When you have it, could you please say amen? The New Living Translation puts it this way. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you live, Jesus says, in the city where Satan has his throne. Yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He, thought, he taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Verse 16, repent of your sin and I will come Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Verse 17 says, to everyone who is victorious, um, I just want to talk about your win is at church. Can you help me preach? Just turn to somebody around you, encourage them, tell them your win is at the church. Your win is at the church. Your win is at the church. So last summer, um, through our Rock Initiative, we opened the community garden. And on that day, we had a community day where we had people from our church, people from the community came out, and uh, we had yoga, we had all kind of games and food, and um, we had people there that showed us how to plant. Um, it was a good time, and uh, we had a few giveaways, and one of the winners of the giveaways uh, was a nine-year-old young man named Evian. And Evian, when his, uh, when his number was called, his name was called, he was so excited about this gift basket that he receives. And Avion testified, he, is, he said, I've never won anything like this ever before in my life. And Avion reflected on his nine years of living that he has never received anything like this before. And he was so excited, his sisters were there, his mom was there. And I made the observation that they came to church empty handed, but now they're leaving with a bunch of stuff. His sisters had plants and they had food, and he had a gift basket, and he was so excited. And uh, I said, y'all came with nothing, now y'all leaving with everything. And Avion was so excited. He's, he says that he was so excited that he was a winner. And then his mom turned to him and said, see what happens when you come to church. And Avion learned something that day that it took me forever to learn, countless mistakes and bad choices that when you are connected, committed, and consistent with the house of God, you put yourself in position to be a winner. You put yourself in position to be victorious. And 
it's sad because we have many believers, many of those who claim to be Christian, many of those who claim to be followers of Jesus who are walking around living defeated lives, walking around in defeat because they have picked up on this lie that says that you don't have to be a Christian to go to church. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Just because you are a believer, just because you are a Christian, just because you are a follower of Jesus, it doesn't mean that you have to go to church to be a Christian. And of course, we, we debunk that, that, that false statement, that lie on many occasions here at Eastern Star Church. And uh, throughout this year, we have been celebrating the importance of the church, celebrating the power of the church, the body of Christ, the black church, Eastern Star Church, uh, because it is what we believe that, no, you don't have to be, a, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, but if you want to be the Christian that God has created you to be, every now and again, you might want to walk into somebody's church. Um, as pastor said, my car doesn't have to be a car. My car doesn't have to go to gas station to be a car. But if it's going to get filled up and get to its destination, my shirt doesn't have to go to the cleaners to be a shirt. But if it's going to get clean every once in a while, my doctor doesn't have to be a doctor. She didn't have to go to school to be a doctor. But if she was going to learn something, she was going to have to go to somebody's school. No, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. But if you're going to get filled up, you're going to get cleaned up. If you're going to learn about the goodness of Jesus and learn about the principles of Scripture, every once in a while, you're going to have to make your way into the house of God. And when you come to church, you'll discover that many of the scriptures of the promises of God that are in scripture are dedicated to the church. And I've said this on countless, countless times that many of the scriptures that are found in scripture are dedicated to the people of God. For those of us who are connected, who are committed, who are consistent to the house of God. You can't claim the promises of God when you are disconnected to the house of God. All throughout the New Testament, the New Testament is filled with scripture that and writings that were written to specific churches. Um, the book called Romans was written to the church in Rome. Philippians were, was written to the church in Philippi. Ephesus, Ephesians, that's a letter that was written to the church in Ephesus. And the, the scripture that I read to you, Revelation, these were seven letters that were written to the church. So you can't claim these scriptures. You can't claim promises that are found in these scriptures when you are disconnected to the house of God. Uh, one of the promises that we found in scripture is that when you are connected, committed, consistent to the house of God, you put yourself in position to be victorious, to be a winner, to be a champ in the name of Jesus. It's like when, when Peter was locked up in prison because of the persecution that they were experiencing in that day. And the Bible says that as soon as Peter got locked up, the Bible says that the church began to pray for Peter. And when the church earnestly prayed for Peter, an angel showed up and freed Peter out of bondage. Because Peter was connected to the house of God, he was able to find deliverance when he was going through. It's almost like when Paul got stoned and was left outside of the city to be left for dead. The Bible says the disciples, the church, came along Paul, laid his hands on Paul, and Paul was able to get back up from that crazy situation. Then dude walked right back into the same city that stoned him. And 
Paul was able to find the power and the strength that he needed to pursue his purpose because he was connected to the house of God. It's almost like when Eutychus fell from the fell out of the church and into the streets. The Bible says Pastor Paul left the four walls of the church, went down to the streets, laid his hands on the young man, and the young man got back from that dangerous situation, went back into the church, and the Bible says that the young man went home alive. Because when you find yourself connected, committed, consistent to the house of God, that is when you are able to experience victory, deliverance, promise. It's all connected to the house of God. And we see more promises laid out here for us in the book of Revelation. A couple weeks ago, I, I preached to you guys, and we looked at Revelation chapter 2, the first few verses there. And uh, when you get to chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation, John the Revelator is, is writing these love letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And, of course, as we know by now, seven is symbolic for whole. So what we read in Revelation 2 and 3 are not just limited to these churches that are listed here, but these principles and these promises that we find in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are dedicated to not just these churches, but to the whole church. So regardless of what generation, what era, what part of history you're part of, regardless of what church you are connected to, all of us, when we are connected to the church, we can find something that, that can resonate with us as being a part of the body of Christ. And so John the Revelator is writing these letters, and he, he's not writing these letters on sabbatical. He's not writing these letters in a, in a fancy office. He's not writing these letters in a, in a, in a peaceful environment. But, but John the Revelator is writing these letters in the midst of persecution, he is in exile. He is on the island of Patmos. He is in pain. He's going through problems. But in the midst of pain, he's still writing. In the midst of problems, he's still writing. In the midst of persecution, he's still writing. Because John is trying to teach us that you and I shouldn't use our pain as an excuse on why we can't walk into the purpose that God has for our life. And if we can be honest, many of us we, we use our pain as an excuse on why we can't be obedient to the assignment that God has placed on our life. Financial pain, family pain, marital pain, health pain. We use our pain as an excuse on why we can't be obedient to the, pur to the purpose and the plan that God has for our life. But here is John in the midst of persecution. While his, while his loved ones are being killed, thrown in prison, while he himself is dealing with exile on the island of Patmos, in the midst of all the pain that he's going through, he still pursues the purpose that God and the assignment that God has placed on his life. And I dare to believe that every now and again, God will utilize the pain to push us to our purpose. God will, God will bring issues in our life to push us outside of our comfort zone so that we can get on the path and of the purpose that God has placed on our life. So the question that I have for you is, what pain is God using in your life? What issues is God using in your life? God is not allowing these pain and these issues and problems to set in just for you to go through the pain. But God is up to something. God is trying to get you to be obedient to the assignment that he has placed on your life. And I'm beginning to believe uh, the more anointing that God has on your life, the more problems you're about to run into. 
Uh, the stronger your purpose, the, more, the stronger the problem that is going to arise because God will use problems to push you into your purpose. A couple of weeks ago, I, I preached at Fisher's campus and we looked at Acts chapter 8 when the Ethiopian eunuch got saved. And he was, he was one of the first uh, people outside of the Jewish tradition that received Jesus into his heart and got baptized. And folk like to say, well, you know, Christianity is a white man's religion made by the white man, written by the white man, for the white man. But Acts chapter 8 proves that as a lie when the Ethiopian unit, you know, Ethiopia is in Africa. And this African, this black African man got baptized and, uh, and Philip was the one that baptized him. And when this Ethiopian unit got baptized, he goes back to Ethiopia and spreads the gospel of Jesus Christ and now... The oldest church in the world is still found in Ethiopia. But, but none of that would have happened had not, had not the persecution of the church intensified. The Bible says in Acts chapter 8 verse 1 that persecution went to a higher level. It intensified. And when this persecution intensified, the disciples move out of Jerusalem. They move out of Judea. They move out of Samaria. And they go to the uttermost parts of the world. Well, y'all know Jesus told them to do that in Matthew chapter 28, but they didn't do it until Acts chapter 8. That's because God had to turn up the problems. God had to turn up the pain. God had to turn up the persecution to get them to operate within their purpose because every now and again, God uses pain, problems, and issues to push us into the assignment that he has for our life. And here is... John the Revelator, he's in pain, he's in persecution, he's going through problems, but he's still writing, he's still working on his assignment. And not only is he in pain, but John the Revelator is in isolation. I told you he's on the island of Patmos, he ain't on vacation, he ain't taking a sabbatical. He is by himself, he's in persecution, he's in isolation. But in isolation... In this moment of silence, in this moment where he's unplugged, in this moment where he has been pulled away, he gets a revelation from God. Revelation chapter 1 says that he sees God. He sees that God is not, he don't look like Brad Pitt, but Jesus' hair is like wool and his feet was like burnt bronze. He sees Jesus. He hears from Jesus. He gets an assignment from Jesus. And he was able to do all that in the midst of isolation away from his email, disconnected from his cell phone, no Wi-Fi connection, no friends, no loved ones around. He's by himself. And while he's by himself, while he's dealing with silence, while he's in isolation, he gets a revelation from God. And every now and again, you and I have to do a better job of listening to silence. I say listening to silence. Because when you and I become more intentional about listening to silence, we'll discover that God actually has something to say. But the problem is we can't hear God. It's not because he ain't talking. It's because we're surrounded by too much noise. We're we, we surrounded by too many notifications, too many emails, too many text messages, too, too much social media distraction. And it is not until we are intentional about spending some alone time with God, just sitting in silence. And, and, and dare I say that silence is another way in which you, you and I can pray to God. 
Because many of us think that in our prayer, we, we, we the ones that got to do all the talking. We, don't, we talk too much and don't do enough listening. And God says, well, I was trying to give you an assignment. I was trying to take, give you your next move. I was trying to give you your next decision, but you was talking too much. You couldn't hear what I was saying. And God is saying, when you have a moment of silence, matter of fact, it is in your isolation that you and I can receive a revelation from God. Um, this happened to me while I was in Atlanta, Georgia, working on my master's degree. I went to the Interdenominational Theological Center in Atlanta, Georgia, Morehouse School of Religion. My last year there, I moved off campus, and I, and I moved, uh, and I was a roommate uh, with my friend Tim. Tim had this fancy apartment, and he let me stay in there uh, for, for a year, semester there. And so while, while I was there, um, he stayed in, in one of them um, fancy uh you know, gated community type of things, you know, like whenever, whenever something went happened, whenever something happened in this gated community, they sent the email to all the, all the residents there. And so one time um, there, there were some problems going on with the water. The water was working, but the flow was weak. It wasn't, it wasn't flowing properly. You try to take a shower, try to, you know, wash dishes or whatever. And, and the flow of the water, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't strong. It was coming out, but it wasn't, the, the flow wasn't right. And so they say, you know what, since the flow of the water ain't right, we're going to shut down the entire water system for, 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 for several hours. We're going to shut down the water system from 2 to 4. From 2 to 4, you won't be able to use your water. You won't be able to turn the water on because in order to get the flow right, we're going to have to shut everything down. And so the neighborhood had enough sense to shut everything down to get the flow right. And it dawned on me, maybe the reason why the flow of the Spirit ain't working in my life, it ain't because it ain't flowing, it ain't because it ain't working, but I have to shut everything down in order to really tap into the flow that God wants to perform in your life. And every now and again, you and I, we're going to have to shut the phone down, we're going to have to shut our dating life down, we're going to have to shut our social life down. Not to be mean, but I need to hear a word from the Lord, I need a revelation, I need my assignment. I need the power and the anointing of God to flow in my life. And every now and again, God will use isolation to bring forth a revelation. And here is John the Revelator. He's in isolation on the island of Patmos by himself. And while he's on this island of Patmos, Jesus begins to speak to him and says, I have an assignment for you. I want you to write everything you see in the first the first segment of, of the book of Revelation is the, the, uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3. He's writing these letters. I call them love letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. A couple weeks ago, we, we looked at the church in Ephesus. Today, I read to you the church in Pergamum. And, and in this church in Pergamum, uh, Jesus starts his letter off by saying, this is, this is from the one of, of, who has the double-edged sword. Then he goes on to say, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. So when you read the book of Revelation, you know that um, John couldn't be as blunt as he wanted to. So he had to write it in code. He had to write it in symbols. He had, he had to use these signs and symbols to write to his people because, y'all, he's in prison. He's in exile. He's in persecution. And so whatever he, whatever he wrote, it had to go through... Uh, it had to go through the Roman Empire in order for them to read it before they send it out. 
So he couldn't be as blunt as he wanted to. Otherwise, his letter, his message wouldn't have got to the people. And so he writes these letters. He writes them in code and symbols and in and, and, and an attempt to get the message to the church. And so what does he say? He says, well, this is from the one who has the double-edged sword. That was, that was really a code. That was a shot at the governor of Pergamum, a part of the Roman Empire. Because the governor of the Roman Empire connected to Pergamum thought that he had the ultimate power to declare life or death in the life of the Christian. Well, Jesus says, no, the governor, he, I mean, he may have the human power, but I got all the power. And so Jesus says, it's from the one who has the double-edged sword. I'm the one that declares who has life or death in this situation. And then he goes on to say, uh, he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Y'all, that was a shot at the Roman Empire, at Greek culture, because Pergamon was one of the main cities of Greek life, one of the capitals of Greek life. And in Pergamon, this is where they had shrines and temples that were, that were erected and built for Greek gods, like, like, uh, uh, like Nike. This is where Caesar worship was at an all-time high. Empire worship, where on the spot, you had, you had to declare that Caesar was Lord. So if you didn't declare that Caesar was Lord, people were talk, going around talking about Jesus is Lord. Now, that was a political statement. To declare that Jesus is Lord in the Roman Empire, that if you didn't declare that Caesar was Lord in the Roman Empire, you will be stoned, you will be thrown in prison, you will be tossed to the lions. It, 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 it was in Pergamum where Greek life was at an all-time high, where, where evil in high places, where corruption was all around. It, it, it was where, 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 where Satan had a heavy influence in the entertainment, in the literature, in the community, in society. And it was in this evil city where people still made their way to the house of God, where people still showed up to the church, where people still made their way to be connected to the body of Christ, it was in this evil day where people still had enough sense to come to church. And when they came to church, that's where they were exposed to the word of God. Y'all, because these letters weren't written to anybody. These letters were written and given to people who came to church. And when these folk came to church, they were reminded that Jesus knows where I live, that Jesus is aware of my circumstance, that Jesus is aware of the things that I'm facing. They came to church and got reminded, Jesus told them, I know where you live. And I don't know about you, but that's good news to know that Jesus knows where we live, that he is aware about our problem, that he is concerned about our issues, that God, God is big enough to be God, but y'all, God, with all the power that he has, with, all, with as big as he is, God still is concerned with human affairs. That's what he shows us in Jesus, that Jesus is all God and all man, that he has a way of being connected and relating to how we live and where we live and the issues that we face. So God is big enough to be God of the universe, but he still has concern about our human affairs. And that's why I thank God for the church, because every now and again, I need a reminder that God knows where I live, that God is aware of the issues that we face. And Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And here's what I've discovered about God. For God, it's not enough for him to be aware. It's not enough just for him to know. 
because whenever God is aware about our issues, God can't just sit idly by and do or say nothing. <laughs> that when God is aware about the issues that we face, God has a word specifically for the problem that we go up against. That God has a word specifically for the issues that we face. That's why I thank God for the church. Because when you and I are connected, committed, and consistent with the house of God, even in the midst of our problems, and we press our way to the house of God, we'll discover that not only does God know about my issues, but God has a word for my issues. And the church exposes us to the word of God. Hey, have you ever had a moment where you was at the crib and you had so much problems and your, your issues were so heavy and you said, man, I ain't even going to go to church today. I ain't even going to fool with them today. Matter of fact, I'm going to just stream. I'm going to just stream today. I don't feel like it. I'm going to just stream. And ain't no problem with streaming. You know, I love the ability of technology. Um, but, but there's a difference between streaming and showing up to the church. You know what I mean? Like, there's a, there's a big difference. Like, when you, every now and again, when you stream and um, you, you at the crib and you streaming and, um, and the, the you're battling with a lot of distractions when you're at the crib stream. I mean, there are distractions when you come here, but there are distractions when you're at the house and you stream it. I mean, I thank God for streaming. There are people that are sick that need to stream in, people who may be out of town, they need to stream in. But there's something, uh, there, there are many distractions when you stream it. I mean, have you ever stayed at the house and you stream it and it's in, the, in the church is on, the choir is singing, the preacher is up preaching, it's on the screen, but then you find yourself like, cleaning the kitchen or something, or you find yourself vacuuming the floor, or you doing homework, and you just find yourself doing all kind of stuff, because there's distractions when you're streaming, but every now and again, in the midst of your problems, there's something on the inside of you that say, man, make your way to the house of God, or your, your friend call you and say, I thought you was meeting me at church today. Your spouse encourage you to show up to church, and you get to church, and all of a sudden, you'll discover that the preacher is all up in your business. It's like he done hacked your emails or something. It's like he was all up in your telephone calls and you like how in the world does the preacher know all about my business can I tell you a secret the preacher don't know nothing it's God that is giving the preacher a word for your situation and you'll discover that regardless of what I'm going through God has a word for my problem is there anybody grateful that when you come to church you'll get a reminder that God is aware that God knows where I live God has a word, and whenever God is aware about your situation, he always gives you a word. It's like when Jesus found out that Jairus' daughter got sick, ended up passed away, he showed up to Jairus' house and gave him a word. And the word that Jesus gave Jairus' daughter said, little girl, I say unto you, get up, and gave life back into that little girl and restored that family because whenever Jesus becomes aware about your situation, he'll give you a word. And when he found out Lazarus got sick and passed away, he showed up to the funeral four days late, but he came with a word and told Mary and Martha, I am the life and the resurrection. And then he told Lazarus, he says, Lazarus, come forth. And the word that Jesus gave Lazarus brought life into his situation because whenever God is aware about your problem, he will give you a word. Um, have y'all ever, ever done a word search before? You know, like a word search 
where you're looking at the word search and it looks very confusing. It looks very chaotic. But the more you sit with it, the more you study it, the more you spend time on it, you'll discover that there are some words in this thing. There are some, there's words in the midst of this confusion. There's words in the midst of this chaos. There's words in the midst of this disorder. And the longer you sit with it, the longer you in the confusion, the more words begin to pop out. And matter of fact, God says sometimes you got to do a word search in your life. I know it looks confusing. I know it looks chaotic, but God says there's a word in there. Do a word search and you'll know all these things will work together for the good. Do a word search and you'll discover you're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. Do a word search and you'll discover I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Is there anybody grateful for the word that God has for your life? And Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, because God gives us a word in the midst of our worries. And then, I love this so much, because God, Jesus says, uh, you're, in, you're in the city where Satan has his throne. Evil influence, corruption in high places. You got a governor, you got a head of state that think he got all the power. But, 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 but I love what he says. He says, but you still hold on to my name. He says, matter of fact, you held on to my name even in the days in which Antipas died. Now, I don't know who Antipas was. Evidently, this church knew who Antipas was because there was no explanation as to who he was. Jesus acknowledged the death of Antipas. He said, my faithful servant, a martyr. And there were countless of men and women who died at the name of Jesus because they were Christians, because of what they believed in. There was, a, there was a political system at place looking to take people out because of their faith in Jesus. And now this, this church, these believers have become victim to the political social system of that day. And Jesus says, despite of all the victims that you've been experiencing, despite of the death of Antipas, you've still been holding on to my name. I don't know who Antipas was. Maybe, maybe he was a leader or a social activist like Dr. King who got assassinated because of his belief in God. I don't know, maybe he was a young man that got killed at the arms of the Roman police because he was a Christian in the Roman Empire. I don't know who he was, but I do know this, that that death took a bad sting in that community but despite of the death, despite how big the death was, they still made their way to the church because the church creates an opportunity for a safe haven for us to hold on to our faith. And when we look at the experience of Christians living in the Roman Empire, being victim of the social political system of that day, I can't help but think of black folks living in America who become victim of the social political system of this day, where we've had countless men and women who have died because of the colors of their skin, who have died because of who God and how God created them to be. The millions of those who died in the Middle Passage, the millions of those who who died in the midst of slavery, the countless of those who died from hangings and lynchings and gang violence and police brutality. But in the midst of all of that death, there's been a few of us who still made our way to the house of God because we know that despite of all the problems that we go through, there is still power in the church. And when we get connected to the house of God, we got something that we can hold on to our faith. And Jesus said, 
Even in the days of Antipas, you've still been holding on to my name. And then he says this. He says, I appreciate y'all still coming to church, but if I can be real, there's some issues that y'all still dealing with. He says, there's some sin still in the church. And Jesus begins to call out the sins of the church. And this is, this is important for us to know because if we can be honest, church folk make the best sinners. I say church folk make the best sinners. Because folk who ain't saved, we know, we know what we get with them. You know, they're expressive in their sin. You know, they like to brag in their sin. And then we come to church and we hide our sin. We don't want to talk about sin. We get frustrated when the preacher even bring up the word sin. Matter of fact, somebody that shut me off just now. I'm just preaching what Jesus preached. Jesus talked about sin. And, and this ain't the only church where he brought out sin. All seven churches was dealing with some type of sin. And this is important because Jesus says, here is a church that is dealing with sin, but the more you come to church, when you're connected, consistent, committed to the house of God, you'll discover that the church creates an opportunity for us to deal with our sin properly, to talk about sin. The Bible says when we confess our sins to one another, that's where healing is. That's what the church is designed for us to do, to talk about our weakness, to get connected to grace, the grace of God, to deal with our sin. Because many of us want deliverance, but we don't want Jesus to deal with our sin. We want the blessings of God, but we don't want God to say nothing about our sin. But when you look at scripture and you look at the miracles of Jesus, every now and again when Jesus will heal somebody, he didn't heal them without addressing their sin. It's like when that man who was paralyzed and that friend and their friends brought him on the mat, they tore the roof apart, lowered him down in front of Jesus. And the first thing that Jesus says, the Bible says that Jesus saw their faith. Then he says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, I didn't come to get my sins forgiven, okay? I came to get my walk right. But Jesus says, what good is it for me to heal your walk if I don't deal with your sin? Because all you're going to do is walk with folk you shouldn't be walking with and walking into places you shouldn't be walking into. So every now and again, before Jesus heals you, as Jesus is healing you, he's going to have to address your sin. It's like when that woman got caught in adultery. And I don't know. I don't know who caught this woman in adultery because they only brought the woman. They didn't even bring the people that she was with. And it was just her by herself. And they called Jesus and said, Jesus, well, you know, you know what the scriptures say. The scriptures say we ought to stone her to death. And uh, the Bible says that Jesus begins to write in dirt. And pastors say, we don't know what he wrote. I'm just glad that he puts his word in dirty places. <laughs> and he begins to write in the dirt. And uh, then Jesus says, uh, who, whoever, with his, who, he without sin, cast the first stone. And the Bible says that everybody from the oldest to the youngest disappeared. I said from the oldest to the youngest. Disappeared. And now the woman was by herself with Jesus. And Jesus says, where are your accusers? And then he goes, and then he tells her this, now go and sin no more. So now the woman, not only was she able to experience grace, but Jesus says, this ain't no cheap grace. You can't experience grace and then go back into your sin because when we have a correct relationship with the church, Jesus addresses our sin properly. Well, how do I address it? Jesus says, repent. 
He ain't say quit. He said repent. Because many of us have quit a bunch of times. Because we don't need to quit no more. We need, we, need, we need to repent. Repent means to change your mind. Repent means to go the opposite way. Repent means to make a U-turn. Because if we'll be honest, we told God the last time was our last time. And that was a lie. So Jesus says, I need you to repent. And, and, and I'm, moving, I'm moving quickly through this thing. And he says that if you don't repent, I'm going to come back and I'm going to fight the church. That's what Jesus said in a love letter. He says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to fight you with the sword of my mouth. And when you read throughout these seven letters, you'll discover that, that the second coming of Jesus will be predicated upon the status of the church. Because folks folk say, man, Jesus ain't coming back. It's been 2,000 plus years. You say he's going to come. He ain't came yet. He ain't coming back. Well, well according to Revelation, uh, the second coming of Jesus will be predicated upon the status of the church. Now, he told the church in Ephesus, if y'all don't repent, I'm coming back and I'm taking a lamp from your lampstand. He told another church, if y'all don't repent, I'm coming back like a thief in the night. He says, if you don't repent, I'm coming back soon because the second coming of Christ is predicated upon the status of the church. And Jesus says, if the church don't repent, I'm coming back and I'm fighting you with the sword of my mouth. And y'all, he's telling the church to repent. I told y'all, this is, this is a letter written to the church. He ain't talking to sinners in the world. He talking believers connected to the body, which means that you and I, we got Jesus in our heart, but we ain't got him in our head. So we, we, we need to repent. And uh, I, I, I've never been a senior pastor. I've been, I've been on staff now a handful of years, and uh, I've, never, I've never experienced a church fight before. Like, I've heard crazy stories about, like, pastors fighting with their leaders and deacons and members in the church and all this crazy stuff. I ain't never heard, I ain't never experienced one personally, but I've heard secondhand stories of church fights. But what all the stories I've heard, I, I want to believe that ain't nothing, ain't nothing like a Jesus fighting the church. And Jesus says, if y'all repent, we're going to get it in. We fighting. But then he says this, for those who do repent, I'm going to give you victory. I'm going to give you wins. He says, I'm going to give you hidden manna. That's a reference to the children of Israel as they were going through the wilderness, and that manna was falling from the sky, and, and God gave them enough just for that day. And the manna that, they gave, that God gave yesterday spoiled today. Because God says, I'm going to meet your every, I'm going to meet your need on a daily basis. I'm going to give you daily bread. I'm going to give you substance that when you repent, get back to the church, get back connected with me. I'm going to make sure that you have the substance, the spiritual substance that your needs will be met. Then he told the church in Pergamum, I'm not just going to give you the hidden manna, but I'm also going to give you a new name. And this name that I'm giving you, is, you're the only one that's going to understand it. He says, I'm going to give you a new name, a new nature, a new identity. I'm going to give you new purpose, new destiny, all that is connected to the name. He says, I'm going to give you a new name like I did Abram. When I turned his name from Abram to Abraham. Like I did Sarah, I turned her name to Sarah. Like I did Jacob, I turned his name to Israel. 
because we serve a God that is in the business of giving out new names. And if we had time for open mic, I'll pass this thing around. And I know there's some new names in the building that when you got serious about your faith in Jesus, Jesus gave you a new name. And you'll discover that there's victory in the house of God, deliverance in the house of God, a breakthrough in the house of God, that when we get believers back connected to the house of God and we repent, turn our ways, turn around, how many know that God will give you victory in Jesus' name? I'm done now. Uh, my, my, my father, just over, over um, in December, during the winter break, uh, he, he, uh, he provided um, a home in Miami and invited his family to come out and hang out in Miami for a few days. And so um, I took my wife and I, uh, we took little Dylan, we, took, we, we even took the baby to Miami. The baby hopped on the plane and came to Miami. And uh, we was down in Miami in this house that our father provided for us. It had nothing to do with what I could provide and everything to do with the father, all right? And so we get down there, and, uh, and I, I really don't know how to take vacations. I ain't going to lie. I'm down there. I'm still doing work. I had to do homework. I had to do schoolwork. And so I'm down there, and uh, I get connected to the Wi-Fi in the house. But I'm in Miami. I'm like, well, if I, if I can get connected to the Wi-Fi in the house, well, maybe the Wi-Fi will work outside the house, right? And so I take my laptop. I get outside the house on a little balcony on the patio, and I'm trying to do my homework connected to the Internet. And then all of a sudden, this, uh, this message came up on my screen, and, and it said that the Wi-Fi is not connected to your computer anymore. It said, get closer to the router and try again. I'm outside of my father's house trying to get connected to the high power, but it didn't work because I was too far away from the source of the power. And it wasn't until I got back into my father's house, got closer to the source, that I was able to get reconnected to the power and get done what I needed to get done. And if I had time to pass this mic around, I know some of y'all could testify that when you were disconnected from your father's house, there was no way you can get connected to the higher power. But how many know when you make a U-turn, repent, turn around, change your mind, get connected to the father's house, how many know that's where your victory is, that's where your deliverance is, that is where your breakthrough is, it is at the Father's house. Let us pray.